0: Welcome to the Workflow Innovation Group's Brilliant or Bust podcast. Today's show is sponsored by Object Matrix, Vidi Spine, and Zixi. I'm Christy King, the host of this grand adventure, and I'm Nick Pierce,
1: co-founder of Wig and Object Matrix. Thanks for joining us.
0: We gathered today uh, about six months into the year, of course, year and post, sort of post-COVID, although there's some. Ongoing discussion about that, which we will have in this podcast. That's, and, a, big, uh,
1: that's a big call.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> Basically, that's not true at all. And what no. we talk about so is what's really happening. <laughs> we dive back in to check in on the state of the industry. So we had a couple of surprising things that are happening or still happening, I should say, yeah. and a lot of stuff that's somewhat predictable, but it's manifesting in some different ways. So, this was a pretty good conversation.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think um, some of the things have been a bit more predictable things we actually talked about in the previous podcast from the very first uh, Devon Croft uh, episode we did, Christy, and yeah. uh, also- Devon uh,
0: Port Devon Croft, whatever. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Tomatoes, tomatoes. <laughs> um, the, um, and then certainly some uh, some cans of worms opened up that if you delve too deeply into them, you probably- never want to get out of bed uh, because you know the reality of the situation we're in is not going to go away in three months four months or, or 12 months you know learning to live with stuff is one thing but learning to live with stuff locally is very different to learning to live with, with stuff on a global scale and yeah we certainly talked a little bit about that and it was super interesting because obviously we've got people in four locations uh, with eric in uh, patagonia um yourself up there in massachusetts mm-hmm. uh, ben and i uh in differing parts of the uk obviously mr Sharman, we missed him today um other other engagements but yeah a really interesting chat actually and that that, that time flew so um, i hope it's interesting for everyone
0: yeah so we have some great conversations where we Talk about everything from trade shows to NFTs to trying to leave our various countries for trade shows <laughs>
1: <Indeed>. <laughs>
0: and everything in between. So, um, yeah, let's go ahead and get started.
1: Super. We're certainly seeing a lot of um, talk and action around cybercrime and ransomware. Oh. So it's
2: quite,
1: quite a reasonable sized broadcaster in Latin America got owned by ransomware two weeks ago, okay. properly owned Um And I think that it's something that's happening more and more. Uh, It's like cyclical, right? Because you'll get a a big broadcaster get hit, like whether it was Sony back in the day or uh, TV Saint-Monde in France, you get a lot of chatter afterwards and then it dies down. And it's coming up a lot more now. And I think um, my personal belief is that pre-pandemic, people were still keeping their production islands as silos within their organizations with not too much remote access. And the moment they've opened up that remote access to people, the moment they get put an old windows machine on the network that can be hit by a robot. And once they're in, they're in, they don't care if it's financial, medical or or content, right? They're not targeting broadcasters, they're targeting lowest hanging fruit vulnerabilities. So for me, that's definitely something that um, is generating a lot of interest at the moment because, you know, obviously remote working, people went hell for leather to open things up and now they're open. Some of them are going hell for leather to close them back down again.
0: Do you think that's going to be the result of it? Is that because there's so much cyber crime and cyber drama, let's call it security issues, do you think that will actually send people running back away from remote production and remote access? Or will they kind of become more sophisticated about trying to protect their materials?
1: Uh, well, that genie's out of the bottle now, isn't it? You can't stop the remote working, but what you do have to do is Invest in your platforms and put the right tools in to make sure that you're not the lowest hanging fruit, that you, are, you don't have all those vulnerabilities and that you train your staff and your freelancers what good data governance is. And that, that's what's missing at the moment. So even things like basic update procedures, upgrading a, an old platform to have the latest OS, uh, there's a bunch of editing platforms out there that still rely on older Windows versions that are completely vulnerable. What do they do about that? So, yeah, um, I think that some things may be shut down until they have the infrastructure in place, but I think that there is gonna be a wave of investment because this isn't a targeting the media industry thing. This is a targeting anyone with open networks. And um, it's just bots that will find it, report back, tell the hackers that we've locked this stuff down, go after them. Um, a, a lot of it we don't hear about because they get paid. They get paid in Bitcoin just to free up the data. But there's so many things you can do to avoid that. But people need to make that investment, right? People didn't invest in it because it's like, why do I need disaster recovery that never can have a disaster? <laughs> and then people invest in disaster recovery. So it's typically, for me, it's led by events. And this is definitely happening at the moment. There's a, an event-driven need to investigate how secure people's networks and storage and workflows are.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Eric, Ben, what's what's in your world? What are people talking about most in your guys' worlds?
2: I was thinking about, as Nick was saying, actually, and uh, there was an advert here in the um, the UK in the, must be the 90s. Nick, you must remember, the switch on and off ability of gas. It was a British gas advert. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's, that's, that's something that we're seeing a bunch of. You know, um, I remember one of the early podcasts, um, Steve, um, made one of his groans about uh, a comment I made about, um, you know, the ability to, you know, do Lego bricks and, and build things on. And, um, and he had a fair point around that. But I think, you know, what we saw during the pandemic is actually building new stuff and implementing new things is a little bit or can be easier than perhaps we think it is. And you, you can build out systems very quickly. You, you, you can turn this stuff on really quick, which is great. Um, but we also need to be able to turn it off as well, if you see what I mean. So this kind of dynamic scaling and the idea of being able to add services or or use things on a consumption basis rather than having kind of all this this infrastructure tied up at the entire time, um, uh, or things you know constantly scale to max rather than scaling with demand. that's what we seem to be seeing a lot of um at the moment and and i think that's that's not a shock it's not it's not something we weren't seeing pre-pandemic it's just it's one of those trends that's accelerated through the um through the last year and we're seeing a lot more of it um, and it's also expanding as to where we see it so it's, it's not just on media processing it's it's on um application usage and, and even storage and other things so um yeah, I think that's that's something we are seeing a chunk of.
1: We had a, quite an interesting conversation last week, Ben, with an organisation in the US, and that it was it was almost about not just data sovereignty but workflow sovereignty. In that, if they've got their workflow in a public cloud provider, and that public cloud provider doesn't match their morals, <laughs> then they can turn them off. And so they were talking about that they want multi-cloud, so that if their public cloud provider doesn't like what one of their content providers says on their channel, that they don't get turned off. And I think that's a really mad point about how us as vendors can build our solutions so that they can exist in that hybrid world to be turned easily. What was it? T- easily turned off and onable. That was it. Turn on and offable. Yeah, so I think that, that, yeah, definitely that ability to scale and ramp up quickly. That is
0: interesting to think. Oh,
1: yeah, 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 no, the, you're right. The ethics or the, the moral stance of a provider. So like, I think we, I mentioned on one call that we turned down a customer at a time where we probably couldn't have afforded to turn down a customer because they were spewing hate. Right. But so it's an interesting thing now if, you're, if you can turn stuff off easily, the end customer needs to be aware of that. Uh, and prepare for that because it's uh, and, you know the the, the chap we were talking to was saying it's you know and they're a, they're not a bad network but he says some of the channels that they have and the programs they have some of the people in those aren't particularly pc and may come out and do or say something that isn't particularly uh on point and therefore the provider of their services might switch them off and i said we just have to be mindful about how we avoid that because we can't you know, if we don't like the same flavor ice cream as the vendor, as the provider, then, you know, that puts us at risk. Uh, right. And it, it's well, and just an a, interesting topic. I think.
0: That's a worldwide issue that's been true for broadcasters forever. You know, go back to analog. I mean, again, when I was working for the UFC, we would have to send programming that was essentially old school recut depending on the country it was going to because each of them had different ethical rules had different broadcast rules whether blood was allowed on screen or not before you know in prime time in germany you can't show blood on the screen at all period it has it then then your hmm. programming is relegated to 10 pm or later well it's no surprise i guess that the digital world is starting to have to go to some of those cultural norms that broadcasters, only only broadcasters used to have to pay attention to. So I guess it's not surprising, um, but, and, and technically should be easier to manage in the digital world than it was in analog. It was pretty expensive to provide all those different versions and different languages and, and, you know, your metadata had to be there, uh, really clearly, um, even, <clears throat> even if it was a label on your tape, <laughs> it had to say, you know, what this version of the thing was. So I guess that's not a surprise, but I hadn't really thought about that. That probably is now really in your guys' faces, faces a lot with workflows.
1: But, I, you know, I think it's a hybrid model, multi-cloud that's fully synchronized isn't, isn't there for everyone today. And I think it's just just an interesting. Really, I, I was. Uh, it, it was a take on it. I had. Never, I just hadn't thought of. Mm-hmm. I just hadn't thought. Of. You can assume that every cloud provider is going to have some downtime at some point or other, and you have to mitigate that. But this is outside of that. This is a more of a, um, a business continuity strategy based on the
3: morals of your providers. Yeah. Well, that and that's going to come down to jurisdiction too. So if I'm in a data center in Virginia or in Oregon or in the UK or in Germany, then I'm going to be subject to different rules in theory. I mean, I would just say that from a our streaming side, because obviously I don't live in the world of file anymore, but the, I would have expected that we would be far deeper into the multi-cloud world. We kind of just got to the multi-CDN. We're learning about the cloud world in general, like Zixi does a ton of, you know, media connect and Amazon is based on, on our Zixi platform. So just assembling those workflows is becoming an entire cottage industry. And then figuring out how you would actually mix that with a Google, with an Azure, with an Oracle, with a private and all that other part. And ultimately they're going to get to, I think, very, very elegant status. But I, you know, I think one of the biggest, uh, I don't know if it's a poorly kept secret or people haven't even really thought about it, but you're watching, at least in the US, we'll just say the top four media companies, which have all been recently reformed and conjoined, are gonna spend between a billion and a billion and a half on cloud infrastructure in a year. And that entire level of efficiency is done on the back of a cocktail napkin by an order of magnitude. There is no, no one's actually gotten down to the measurement, the piece, let alone when you're talking about jurisdictional moral basis. We, we don't even know what right now you've thrown three hundred million dollars up in a given large scale account. And you someone tell me how that architecture was all put together. Uh, and that's what we're and that's what we're all kind of working on collectively. But I mean, for me, for me, Dixie, that's like if I could shave 10 points off somebody's bill, that's material. And I just think we're just starting to get to that. And, you know, as Christy pointed out, like the whole world's gone in a digital broadcast model. So where before every country had very strict rules around how you access the public and what you could show them and how you could show that to them. That's the other poorly kept secret. How do we know about rights management? Well, in the US, we would say float the buoy, put it on air. And if some lawyer called you, you'd no, you made a problem. And so I don't know that we know the rights any better. I don't know that we, if anything, you've gone with way, way, way more content now. Um, we have uh, ex-United States presidents that are not allowed to participate in certain media. So you have to think about these things. Um, and, and, you know, and the calls to action are real and information is real. And, like you, you turning down that client, Nick. That's a real uh, business decision because you you take on it's not just lost revenue, but you take on all other kind of liability potentially as well. Um, so I, you know, I, I think that architecturally this stuff is just starting to come together. If you say what is really new for me, it's the same old thing. Only we're, we're deep. in the adoption curve that hits the chasm before you get to the growth. We're still in the chasm. I would say that virtualization is not even, it's 10% in the fortune 500, and it's probably about the same or slightly less in media. And I would even say from what I hear from you folks, less again in the Europe, because um, the guys that I'm outlining and looking at are able to get really, really good unit pricing because they're buying at an incredible scale. But if you actually try to run these commercial programs, at lesser scale, they hit a certain wall of the economics that are tough to overcome.
1: Yeah, we, we've talked about that. The fact that not everyone gets the uh, the 80-point discount um, to run it. And it, it, I, I look at it a bit like taxation, right? The the people at the top of society pay no tax. The people at the bottom of society pay little tax, and it's the mugs in the middle that pay all the tax. And it's the same with cloud cloud offerings, is that those big high-scale companies, the ones we've talked about, the sports the big, you know, the, the very big uh, monolithic companies, they've got the great discounts, the the new starters and the students pay nothing. And yet it's the businesses in the middle that fund that entire model. And I think you're right, that it has to be at scale. And before we move on from sovereignty, I think uh, John, our CEO wrote something about two years ago. And it was around the time of, uh, you know, certain American president making stuff up as things happened or not and it was a case of you know when it comes to data sovereignty and with with content and information being you know the new gold what if a country decides that any content that comes in or out has to be taxed digitally or not right and so therefore when you're using a, plaf- a platform of any nature sovereignty is definitely important and i think that's why multi-cloud and i did say in our predictions that multi-cloud is going to be something we talk about more and this is my way six months later or seven months later we're filling that in and i think that multi-cloud it does have a, a more of a place based on that ben you've been unnaturally quiet or we've been just jabbering I, too
2: much. I, I, you know um uh Taking my VidiSpine brand hat off and talking a bit more generally about Avato Systems, we're 100 yeah, totally agree. And, and if we look outside the media industry for a minute and look at um, our core market in terms of a, a provider in in Germany, uh, multi cloud is exactly what we do. And we and we target or we work yeah. with primarily with the um, with the Mittelstand, as we call it in Germany, which which is exactly those organisations you talk about. They're not the big guys, they're not the little guys, they're, they're the guys and, and and, you know, that's where we, we are a multi-cloud provider in that sense. So, yeah, naturally, that will come into to the media industry too.
0: It makes me think more and more and more about um, metadata in general. Because, you know, if you're, if you're talking about content, where it's stored physically, <laughs> what it is, um, who's in it, what the subject matter is, all of a sudden all those details it sounds like are going to have really strong import into the future uh, on pretty much every business decision a, a piece of content may have
2: there was a massive challenge um, 15 20 years ago or it was only 15 years ago when um a lot of countries started to regulate around closed captioning and and subtitling that content had to be subtitled and closed captioned um and this caused um significant headache because Although you might have the broadcast rights for a bit of content, the audio and video, the caption rights were often separate. So there was this huge demand in workflow to know where the closed caption or subtitle metadata came from, and whether or not you had you had to, you, you had the rights to use that, or you had to regenerate it. Uh, and often we had these horrendous, comp, you know. Um, kind of uh workflows where a piece of content going into scandinavia would have to be re-captioned in three different language even if the captions already exist because it was different rights and all the rest of it and the targeting was different so so we're going back to a lot of that stuff we're in a different place now in terms of what we can automate and and what we can do with um ai and and those kind of things in terms of automating workflow and automating processes but but they're things that I think um, haven't necessarily existed for the on-demand platforms in the same way as that we, we kind of had to build in workflows and workarounds in in kind of the traditional linear broadcast sense.
1: We've been doing some work on um, adding time-based time code metadata to Clips, right, in an object store so that it doesn't matter what you access it with, it'll be with the, the object in the archive. And one of the things that has come out of it is clearly no standard, right? There's clearly no standard across applications that says the timecode metadata, it will exist in this format. And therefore you can't easily migrate it from an avid environment to whatever, right? without a serious amount of glue in the middle that understands loads of different types of formats. And Christy, you've probably seen this yourself with all the work you've done in metadata. And I'm sure Ben, that your work on metadata is, must have come across that and you've probably got solutions for it, but from a 20,000 foot view, I mean, it's, you know, we're, we're trying no, to get our thing.
2: customers- That's good news because uh, SIMTI have a, uh, a working committee um, looking at metadata standardization for, for exactly that. Um, I, whether we'll see a de facto standard before we see a published standard is a, is a different matter. But I think, yeah, it's, it's a very challenging thing with metadata. There are standards out there, but but there's there is definitely not a one fits all. And you know the stuff that DPP did and um, the ARD did around, around you know the ARDs or DFMXF profiles and those kind of things. It, you know a lot of um, time code based or time based metadata does have a place, and certain file formats even give you somewhere to store it. But um, yeah, it's 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 a complex, horrible.
3: Um, well, and then, it, and then it extends further so in my l- wonderful world of live you jump into hls and hls isn't a standard it's an approach and it has dark unpainted corners and someone if you're trying to do a ladder stack of this moving files um you know where does my where is my gop structure where's my iframe how do i get in and out of this live edit system like a blackbird of Vermont on a WRC, they're going to do it one way then you have to have You're live trying to manage the Scuddy markers, the captioning, go into a world system for ad insertion and do all of that. So, I mean, you got to be talking about the file and a Simti standard. That's great. But meanwhile, every day, we're all just making up HLS stuff as we go along and just trying to. And I mean, one of our big jobs is normalizing and industrializing that because this thing was meant for consumers. It wasn't meant to be full B2B, but absent a great alternative that is nowhere near us uh, we we'll, we'll use what we got
1: well that's that's like the uh, Amazon s3 API standard that everyone uses that's not a standard and uh, it's the only thing that's available so that people are using it and you know ultimately that's going to re- lead to ruin for many and, and your HLS would be the same because you know my background in co- sorry now my, my background in bombs was um, was based on if you didn't write to white book or Blue book, you didn't your kit didn't get on the on the network. And I think that when it comes to standards, and we talked about this in, the, in one of the previous podcasts, unless someone really says you ain't joining the game unless you adhere to the standard, then you'll end up with this mess and it'll just get worse. And especially as we build and scale, it's it's not going to get any better soon. Right. right
0: but what to I was remember, gonna say, but oh sorry, go ahead, Eric.
3: I was just gonna say just take anybody in this industry, and I will date myself, but we struggled to get from MPEG one to mpEG two. And everybody had their MPEG-2 in its own special little version. And then you were trying to create proxy channels and now derivatives. And I used to joke about, you know, having been in the man business for a number of years, we would call it afghan because it was just, it was a very, the, the most you could get a product to was like 50% and then everything else was customized. And now you have to manage everything in a, live instantly available way and you're pulling off satellite you're going your ott d2c msl ird pick all your alphabet soup is becoming one thing and all of that stuff is do you record only in s3 do you go to a media store where do your assets live how many different places do you want to put them um what is what is even a ProRes? thing like back in the day if people would have very strong opinions about what bit rate you needed and what you were really capturing and now with things like HEVC it, you get beautiful pictures at 2025 20, megabits and what is really required and then what does 4k mean across that and then uh, it's uh and, and meanwhile there's no time except uh to code it normalize it and, and get it running
0: right and, well and, and make
3: sure that's all and keep it up at five nines or better
0: Yeah, well, yes, of course. Because most most of my world is, you know, especially during COVID, it was all this. It's and trust me, Zoom is another platform that was never intended for somebody like me to be pulling all this content into edit platforms for audio and video and trying to make something out of it. I mean, it's it's a disaster from from a metadata and standards perspective. But the same thing happened during COVID that happened in the years before that with, with as social media started to become such a strong marketing engine, everybody and their brother was just taking snippets off the live record on their computer in order to make their social media clips, right? And that turned into a whole couple of products in and of itself that I have no idea if they're around anymore. But you know, the point is the whole entire digital world moves at the speed of light and standards are are it just to figure it out six months from now that the kids downstairs have been recording their own, basically stealing their own broadcast in order to do marketing, right? So just, there's so much of that, just get it done. And we'll figure out the standards and the reality later that introduces this mess that most of you guys have to deal with every day.
1: So what we're saying is that the Broadcast technology industry is affect the Wild West and it's like prospecting 101 where everything's getting whatever they they'll do, whatever they can do to get it done is what we're saying.
0: Yeah. And I don't think that's changed from, you know, one inch tape forward. What else is like uh, one of the things I was curious if you guys had been reading or paying attention to is this idea of digital collections um, being sold as NFTs. And, you know, the metadata that's associated with those, a blockchain. Um, Has anybody talked to any of you guys about trying to figure out how to create their NFT digital collections and and how to secure those and how to create them? Is that something anybody's brought up to any of you guys yet?
1: Not yet, but um, yeah, I, I saw that one of our customers is doing a lot of it in the sports space and sort of reached out to them and said, <clears throat> ideal, pl- ideal ideal, platform for your 70 petabytes of archive by the way um <laughs> we've only got a tiny amount of it our customers and the people we're talking to like the prospects rather are still shipping drives around with 4k footage on to freelancers apartments because they can't because uh, they can't make their remote workflows work for that sort of high-end workflow so i think they're still busy worrying about that side of things and working out how to manage their media properly and probably talking to Uh, Ben and co and us at the same time to sort of manage that Mm -hmm. than they are about the what is pretty much a uh, it's on the before the before the dip in the curve in the innovator cycle I think it's right there with the uh, early adopters and the innovators and whether we get across the chasm or not I don't know
0: that's interesting I figured it was probably pretty early whatever it is has to be slightly past fad stage before your you know, real operational people get involved and say, all right, how do we manage this? How do we do with it? But it's a conversation I was having with um, uh, uh, people both at MLB and um, NBA, because of course the NBA has jumped into it, but the way they are handling it is all external. It's an external source that's creating the material and it's an external source that's actually doing the auctions. So they're not, they're probably shipping a hard drive to the partner to get those digital collections created and of course mlb is the sport i think personally that has the most data rich uh connectivity with their media so i'll be interested to see what if anything they do with that to make their version more interesting more engaging more interactive you know or to nick's point this just is a fad that goes away in a, in a I don't way.
1: know. It, it's one of those things where you don't want to be like the fuddy-duddy or Luddites for the new technology, the cool thing that's coming out. But I just don't know anyone who gets gets it right now. You know, I just don't. But obviously someone gets it because yeah. they're putting millions into it. So maybe it's just... I going to
3: say, like, I don't get it either, but somebody spent $60 million on a digital something. And we know, does it, did anybody get that Bitcoin was going to be at $50,000 and then back or not? Yeah. Um,
1: i know that's the thing yep. although I, I think a couple of my friends did buy that poo coin which was the uh, <laughs> the, the joke coin and that, that went up to a reasonable amount but yeah unbelievable yeah uh, no uh, yeah no further comment on that one it's just...
0: <laughs> so clearly nft isn't part of anybody's workflow yet which is, is probably no surprise but interesting nonetheless so what else what else is there anything else or is that is it really just it is everything in our world, the media industry, just plugging along, um, trying to get to a place where we have stronger and stronger metadata that's tied to a better workflow and much more security in, in remote workflows.
3: I think you got that's a very abstract way to look at it. I would say you know, the, the, the fundamental big thing
1: mm-hmm.
3: is that the audience doesn't exist like it did. And in my day-to-day world, I'm watching Disney plus Fox. Uh, I was happily working with my friends at Warner Brothers that are now, Warner Media, that are now Warner Brothers Discovery, Um, Viacom, CBS, still ongoing. And all of these guys are coming together to formulate a platform that will be able to get to an audience. And quite frankly, people are like, we haven't even gone through the rationalization. Is this a skinny bundle, a bundle? What is? What does actual programming look like? Like, and how are you getting, like, what, HBO Max? It's a big bet. Peacock, these are big bets. Have they equaled traditional broadcast? Not yet. So you have to migrate from a model that had 74 billion US dollars in North America alone for broadcast advertising, and you need to move that into a digital space. And I think that that's what you really, from our bigger picture, I mean, the United States exports... Three big things, and it's media and entertainment, it's financial services, and it's technology. And um, you're gonna, and we talked a little bit. It's interesting you said about sovereignty, Nick. So we kind of take the open internet and networks as a thing, but you're you're already seeing Russia create its version. China will have its version. And how do you get to those audiences? And does that like does suddenly Ireland to be able to pop up its own little version of the internet that's tax free or something like that. And, you know, none of that's entirely clear. Um, what are you going to, and like, I've obviously been on the stump and I'm working very diligently with 5G. That's a global rollout, that's a global change of what that means. And it was very interesting to see that BT has a private 5G. So their approach is radically different than, say, Verizon, who's got. Three competitors that they have to get with T-Mobile and AT and T, and what does this all mean? Um, And what is it going to mean when uh, a Generation Alpha can receive a hundred megabit stream on their phone, but also send a hundred megabit four K eight K stream on their phone? Yeah, you know, and and that's where we talked about standards. By the time people figure out how to standardize this stuff, it's gone. it's gone <laughs> It's
1: closing the door after it's bolted and like no yeah, completely get that. And I think also um, the, the one as a, as a family with teenagers consuming stuff is actually quite difficult at the moment because you've got the five different services, and I think that they've all got rubbish interfaces, though they are, I've said it again, they've all got rubbish interfaces for finding stuff and, and teeing stuff up. Um, and I think that whoever comes out with a really decent aggregator a really decent interface for actually bloody finding and watching stuff in the way that you want to watch it. That, for me, is going to be one of the challenges because none of them have got a good interface at the moment. Well, that, that,
3: you're describing some reason why, and I know Christie's an investor in Roku, but that's why the Roku stock's done pretty well because it makes it a little easier to put that stuff together. And I think you're right. Like I Again, mean, Nobody wants to admit it, but everybody's throwing darts. And what is a skinny, what is the right way to put all this programming together? What has these companies have all shifted? They're pulling back their libraries. So now you're getting into another level of weaponization of what do I have for an archive? How much you know, like the fact that Amazon's gonna buy MGM. Why? Because you want the James Bond franchise. You need to get okay. somebody to do it somewhere there, you know, and and every, you know, and you're actually running out of content availability and the idea that net. I remember 10 years ago when Netflix was still sending DVDs and people said, oh, you're going to win the streaming business? You're crazy. Of course, stocks up 10,000% since then. But they, nobody thought they'd have the money to buy the rights. Nobody even foresaw that they were just going to say, screw oh, that. I'm going to eight, spend $18 billion and make my own. Should
1: we we? Uh, when do you want to talk about trade shows then? <laughs> <laughs>
3: I can tell you. Here's the thing. I thought I was going. Let's talk about that because I had a dream in my mind that somehow I was going to be meeting people in Las Vegas, and I can't even get out of my country. So I don't see if you lock this Delta variant, we are just wishful thinking, complete denial. It's not going to happen. I don't like if we can't even say that the Olympics is going to happen. Don't tell me that 175,000 people are going to get together and go to you know Las Vegas because they're not.
2: The impression I get from people in Vegas and on the West Coast is that you know everything's kind of getting back to normal itch in except people aren't traveling across borders.
3: Vegas um, is getting but, normal, but what client? Which which of your clients is going to go there? You'll have great vendor conversations. Well,
2: that is that is the question, and and I have to say that one of our reasonings with for, for not feeling we could continue to exhibit for IBC was. Was who, who's going to travel there, uh, and and actually, crucially, who's going to ask their staff or their colleagues or or set any expectation that they would travel? Which,
3: which one of your high value employees are you going to put on an airplane and ship right. them to a, a uh, pandemic?
2: Yeah, place? I mean, or or <laughs> put in that kind of environment, and even if you know, even if that is allowed and the regulations are lifted, corporate or or national. Um, can you when is it ethically okay to ask ask somebody to do that? Um, because I, I went on holiday the other the other week um on vacation for, for the international audience, and um I've I've not really left home for the for the last um 18 months and and I live in a fairly rural area, I've not seen a lot of people and um, and nick you'll laugh at this but um we went to the Isles of city which is very very quiet and i was okay there but then we had a couple of days in penzance and the way back now penzance is not exactly a metropolis but i i really got that anxiety of having people around and you know it was know, actually at the time it was high risk because g7 had just passed through and brought the delta variant with it but um the you know the it, it wasn't, it's not a really crowded place. It's not a metropolis, but, but I did feel anxious. And, um, and I think people will have those feelings beyond the end of this year. So, yeah, we, um,
1: we, we, we've made the, the call that certainly myself, if we're allowed to travel, myself and John, our CEO are gonna go, um, we've, we've opened the invitation to one of our technical staff. There's no, no pressure at all on that person to go or not. We're gonna land there. I mean, SVG is so say going ahead. So we're going to go there for that. If the show is as expected to be dire, we will just head straight to LA and try and do some business there and go home by New York. So we're not having a booth. We're not investing any money other than landing in the U S hotel and get out of Dodge. If, um, if it's terrible and, you know, gut feeling is it's not going to be great, but, you know, I echo Ben's thoughts chatting with people in LA and that things they reckon that September everything will be more open. But if if Delta or Echo or Yankee, well, <laughs> the Yankee I Jango, Rusty, There thing. you go. That's it. Yeah.
3: Either
1: <laughs> <laughs> either of those, either of those uh, combinations come off, then all bets are off, right? And we're not booking flights to last minute. We're not going to book anything to last minute.
3: Well, we are. We all know, and I think about what you're saying. So I'm here, obviously, in Patagonia, in a country that. It gets down to, we don't know what these variants and what the different um, vaccines mean. I mean, this gets really pragmatic. So I have Cinevac and Cinefarm and I see a variety of outcomes. How will that um, base of vaccination work? I was supposed to be getting an extra Pfizer in this in America. And I just, history shows us from 1918 and the quote unquote Spanish flu poorly named because the United States was trying to pretend it didn't exist. But that's a two and a half to three year exercise, and we're a year and a half into this. And and people are, and more and more humans are traveling, and still. And I was in it. You know, it was weird to be to uh, Ben's part. Being in an airport was really strange. Having lived in airports, like basically, I in that 2019, I flew 110 flights in one year, and I haven't been any outside a five mile radius until Thursday, where I was told. To head back. Get back so, in. So, ben. I, uh, well, so, You know, you, you and, and the idea that we're going to get back to real mass travel that soon is just, uh, it, it's just, we want it to be. Yeah. We, that's it. That's, that's that's what we it. want it to be, yeah. but it yeah. won't.
0: And it's super inconsistent because to counter all of you guys, I left my world for the first time in almost two years. This weekend, I went to a live sports event in Florida and flew from Massachusetts to get there. And in Florida, the COVID experience is 90% different than how it is in Massachusetts. So then you Mm -hmm. magnify that across the world and start talking about international trade shows. And, you know, it, it... I think Eric's right. We'll see some people in three years and some people will go today, but it's not going to be consistent or even.
1: I I think the news that came out, was it two weeks ago that you cannot go to a Bruce Springsteen concert if you have the um, AstraZeneca vaccine because the the AstraZeneca vaccine is not recognized by the U S drug, whatever federation thing. So therefore, it could be that any of us Brits coming over, going into a venue, have to have a vaccine that's been approved by the US government, federal or local. Wow. Uh, and it's that's because
0: branch into things, doesn't
1: it? AstraZeneca wasn't on this, but this is where the fun begins, right? That's what Eric's saying. He's got his vaccines. You end up then becoming like a bloody pillbox <laughs> just so you can you've got every vaccine under the sun going, just so you can travel. Yeah, it's a can of worms, but I'm a little bit along the way of, of, of Eric. Um, you know, I think that um, Jeff Rossiker, in his article that he, he did with The Hollywood Reporter, was, it's madness. Why are people doing it? No one's speaking to us about it, but it's madness to have a show in December.
0: Yeah.
1: I can't imagine the show in October is going to be much more. So, yeah, I think it's a case. I mean, of course, I feel really... Really, really sorry for the the guys who rely on trade show industries. Um, Trade Fair in the UK, Mark, Birchall and the gang are superb people, amazing people. Their business has been massively impacted and they're the most helpful, lovely bunch you'll ever meet. But, you know, right now, that's just going to have to wait. And hopefully the government will support them as much as they can until until we can press go properly.
0: Yep.
3: I think also it'll be interesting to see what... we've had this talk on this thing and then i have to jump to another call but we uh you know the the m e industry is made up of a lot of smaller firms right so there's a big but it's really it's a it's small scrappy intelligent but they're small firms and how are they going to survive and how are they going to get like so you know, you look at NAB and it ranges from yes, I have my giant, avid, previously Sony type booths. We Zixi were going to be making our big 40 by 40, two story, you know, coming out debutante ball. But where, where were all the ones that started where we did in the back with the 10 foot table and the drop cloth? Um, and I don't even know, you don't even have that whole, you're, you're breaking a, a kind of cycle of innovation, development. I don't know. We don't know what that's going to do. And and meanwhile, bigger companies like suddenly an AWS is present in the market that in media, that it wasn't. And that's going to be its own thing, whatever that becomes. Um, But I do, I think, I do think that you got a moving customer in the media companies that we talked about and they still play global despite the parts. And then the amount of content they're trying to exchange, the audiences they're trying to figure out how to get to. I mean, Nick, you're like super technical, and you've got kids and your kids can't figure out how to get the content they want. That's a, that's not, a, that's not a, uh, an individual problem, that's a global thing that's being trying to be figured out. And we're all gonna go, I could say multi-cloud, but how does that translate into multi-cloud dollars? That's another animal. Uh, yeah. And then meanwhile, when we are not physically to free to move about the world.
0: Right. Oh,
3: that's that's a real that's a real thing. Right.
0: Well, that's a great, great six month check in on the wig crew <laughs> to see where we all are in the land of media. So thank you guys I, for checking. Minus,
1: in. minus Mr. Jarman. We've missed in his grumbling. He would have he would have grumbled at at least two of those comments. Yeah.
0: <laughs> absolutely well too bad he's not here so he can't grumble he'll have to join us uh in a couple of days for our next one where... we
2: should do one of those uh, steve reacts video you know so yeah. do the reaction videos. we just play this back
0: and, you know,
2: and it's, it, it's, it's a top corner reaction to I exactly. do
0: actually that'd be really fun i'll call him up <laughs> afterward and just get screenshots and insert them <laughs> in the appropriate areas <laughs> thanks guys appreciate it. appreciate it stay, stay sane brother Today's Wig Talks Brilliant or Bust podcast was sponsored by Vidispine, cloud based media workflow solutions to maximize your media potential, Zixi, the global leader in broadcast quality live video over IP, Object Matrix, the cloud storage people who provide platforms that enable creative and production teams with self serve access to media content on premise or remotely from anywhere. Today's contributors were Hawthorne Innovation, helping bring the power of modern artificial intelligence and the cloud to bear on story production, content supply chains, and media systems integration. And Christie King, LLC, a media technology consultancy and content creator.